I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Next week, I'm going to start a series on the Gospel of Mark, and I'll talk more about that in a few moments. But uh, today, I want to set that up a little bit and do a case study of this church called the Ephesian Church. The, uh, as my old 10th grade teacher used to say, class, get out your passports. Uh, we're going to Ephesus today. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go to Ephesus. And the reason I want us to go to Ephesus is because uh, more than any church in the New Testament, we have a, a, a good look throughout the New Testament of the history of this church. You can actually trace the beginnings of the church uh, and then trace its history for about 50 years because it's mentioned in several places, and I'll explain that in a moment. But first of all, just where is Ephesus? I've had the privilege of actually going to Ephesus back when we were missionaries. There was a Mission to the World conference in Ephesus, and the old city is still there. You can stand in the place where uh, there was a riot, and uh, Paul was run out of town, and, and you can see some symbols that there was a church there. You can also see the Temple of Diana that's mentioned there in Acts 18, 19, and 20. Uh, Ephesus was the center of, of the worship of this goddess Diana, and the temple there was one of the wonders of the seven world, this ancient, the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was one of them. And when we went to visit the old uh, city of Ephesus that's being excavated, uh, we saw that old temple of Diana, and, and there's nothing standing. It's a field of stones except for one pillar that's standing there. So the worship of Diana does not go on anymore, thankfully. And right across the street is a little uh, storefront church, evangelical church, and that's in modern-day Turkey, which is a Muslim nation. So that was really encouraging, especially for a bus full of missionaries who were going to see Ephesus. Uh, really exciting to see that, that, yes, the Lord has continued to build his church, even there, in a very difficult place today. But if Ephesus was a very important city, uh, it was the most important city. There are seven cities that are mentioned here in the book of Revelation, and its uh, economic and political importance was more than the other places like Thyatira and Laodicea and the others. It it was a great center of commerce with its ports and its roads. Uh, Much of the trade from the east came into the Aegean Sea through Ephesus. And I've already mentioned that it was a great religious center as well, being the center of this worship. In about 52 A.D., that's when the church had its beginnings, Paul's second missionary journey. Believers were there. Paul encountered them. Uh, They had heard a little bit about the gospel and John's baptism, and Paul further enlightened them. He left, but left Priscilla and Aquila there. And then Apollos joined them as well, and those three helped establish the church. And so about the time, uh, about a year later, uh, Paul decides to go and revisit the churches that have been established on his third missionary journey, and he ends up staying there in Ephesus for about three years. And that's when, uh, as I mentioned before, he gets run out of town basically because there's a riot uh, between him and, or because of his preaching the gospel and People aren't buying the the silver replicas of the the Temple of Diana because nobody wants to worship her anymore. They're worshiping Jesus, thankfully. And so uh, he eventually leaves, and in the following year, six months or so, he passes nearby and he gathers the elders from the uh, church in Ephesus. And there in Acts 20, he meets them for the last time and he gives them some words uh, as a a final, final thought for them and warning for them. And so he leaves Timothy there, and we have the books of First and Second Timothy that were 
Well, no, 1 Timothy, Timothy was written while Timothy was there serving the church in Ephesus. And Paul also later writes the, the book of Ephesians to Rome. So, so we have uh, the beginnings of the church given to us in the book of Acts. We know that Paul wrote to Timothy to tell Timothy what the church in, in uh, Ephesus needed to hear. Paul himself wrote to the Ephesians to tell them some information that they needed. And now in Revelation, which is about 30 years later than when Paul initially wrote them, 30, 35 years later, John receives a revelation about the church at Ephesus. And we can kind of trace their development from their beginnings, uh, from the difficulties that they were having, and where they are about 30 years later. So very interesting study. So without further ado, let's look at what these last words that we hear about the church at Ephesus. Now, just to give you the background, by this time, there's a great persecution against the church, uh, mainly centered around emperor worship. Uh, the Roman Caesars proclaimed themselves to be gods, and the people of Rome and all their conquered lands were to worship the emperor. And, of course, Christians didn't do that, so they were facing uh, great persecution during this time. And so John receives this word from, from the Lord Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, here in chapter 2, we find many things to commend the church of Ephesus to us. Verse 2 says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. So three things he mentions here that Jesus knows about the church at Ephesus. He knows, first of all, their works. He knows their deeds. And he knows them because he is the one, as verse 1 tells us, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 20, it tells us there that the seven lampstands are these seven churches that are in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so Jesus is walking among the churches. That's the vision that John gets there in chapter 1. He's present with those churches. They can't see him. They may not even think he's present, especially as they go undergo this difficult persecution that they're undergoing. But Jesus is there. He walks with them through these difficult times. Uh, because of the persecution, they had lost their jobs, their businesses were marginalized, and they were subject to uh, physical abuse, even to the point of death. But Jesus knows, and that's a comfort to us all. Jesus knows his church. He knows what's going on. He knows their deeds. He knows their works. He also, it says, second thing, he knows their toil. The word here means hard work, labor to the point of weariness. I'm sure everyone here has had a day when they've gone out and worked and, and just worn themselves out through work. It's not hard to do, especially for some of us who are pretty soft. But Jesus knew it was not easy for them. 
And he understood what they faced on a daily basis. It was, a hard, it was hard being a Christian in those days. Very difficult. Very dangerous. Yet, they were patiently enduring. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they courageously accepted suffering and hardship and remained faithful in the face of it. Verse 3, 8, 3 reiterates this. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So in the midst of the grind of their lives, uh, they held up the banner of Christ unashamedly and despite the consequences, sometimes very negative consequences. And then there's a fourth thing that Jesus knows about the Ephesians. He says, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Now, if you go back to Acts 20, the last time the Apostle Paul, remember Paul lived there three years in Ephesus and uh, really helped the church in Ephesus to grow. The last thing he says to them is this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So Paul's warning them that false teachers, even amongst those people who were sitting there and whom he was addressing, there are going to be false teachers that come up and are going to try to destroy the church. Uh, Paul also stressed that in 1 Timothy. When Paul writes to Timothy and says, I've left you in Ephesus to to uh, help establish the church even further. Uh, here are some instructions about uh, how the church should be run. But be careful, Timothy, about your teaching and oppose all the false teaching that's going to come your way. So they've been doubly warned. And here we find in Revelation 2 that they took those warnings to heart. They were people who did not stand, did not stand for any fierce wolves coming in among the flock. They stood strong. They were orthodox. False teachers had come in. But the, but the Ephesians did not fall for their lives. They held firm to the truth. They did not bear with those evil false apostles, it says. Verse 6 says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, nobody even knows what the Nicolaitans uh, preached. Uh, that, whatever that teaching was is lost forever. And there's some speculation that it was probably some new and improved Christianity that the Nicolaitans were espousing, and uh, that, that really overlooked immor immorality. That was prevalent in those days. And so the Ephesians were not falling for that. They were orthodox all the way. They didn't waver from the truth. They were uh, valiant and vigilant in defending themselves and the church against all the schemes of the devil, as Paul wrote them in Ephesians, to put on the whole armor of God so that you can face the foe. They were doing all this. They held firm to the truth that was delivered to them by the apostles. Now, surely we would love to be a church like the church in Ephesus, standing strong for the truth, upholding, working hard, even in the face of difficulties. But as we read this passage, uh, there's a shocker. There's a shocker in this passage. Jesus says to them that this faithful, hard-working, truth-loving, orthodox church was in danger of having Jesus come to them and, as it says, remove their lampstand from its place. Now, what exactly this means, I'm not sure, 
chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that the lampstands are the seven churches. And verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us that, as we said before, Jesus walks among the churches. So Jesus is going to remove their lampstand from its place of prominence where he walks among them. Of course, that's not a good thing, no, no matter what it means. It could mean that the church is destroyed. It could mean that the church dies or ceases to be a church. It could be that Christ withdraws his presence from the church. No matter what's the case, none of those things are good things that, that, would happen, that could happen to a church. We'd, we'd, we wouldn't want that to happen. The Ephesian church didn't want that to happen. The Ephesian church was in need of some revitalization. Now, this brings us to why I'm speaking to you about the church at Ephesus. Now, I've spoken to many of you over the couple of months or so. We've been talking to one another, and, and time and again, this theme has come up. where The church needs to be revitalized. Uh, there needs to be some renewal. And, uh, you know, this is a great case study. We can look at the church of Ephesus, and knowing from firsthand experience that there's still a church in Ephesus, the Lord didn't remove the lampstand, even though, of course, the church is undoubtedly very small today, but how can we not have this faith of becoming a church that dies, that is removed, that Christ removes his presence from? The Ephesians church is in need of revitalization. Many of you have said the same thing about this church. Now, why are they under the threat of this judgment? He says in verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So here we see what's really important to Jesus and what they were lacking. What's more important than good deeds, hard work, patient endurance, and right belief. Now, those things are of utmost importance. You wouldn't want to not have those things. However, they're not the most important thing. Love is the most important thing. A church that loves Christ and loves others is the most important thing. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that's read at many weddings, it's kind of funny that we read that at weddings because it's a very scary passage because it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So what Paul's telling the Corinthians there is, look, you can, you can speak messages from angels, but if you don't have love, it's meaningless. You can be a prophet and share messages from God, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. You can understand every mystery you can have all the knowledge in the world but if you don't have love you're nothing you can have faith so great that you can move a mountain but if you don't have love then you're nothing you can give away everything you have you can become a martyr and be burned alive for the sake of the church but if you don't have love you have gained nothing that is a powerful powerful statement a church and christians as individuals may be faithful to do good works faithful in its defense of truth faithful in bearing up patiently through difficulty but still perish due to lack of love 
it's very, very important that love, love for Christ is the key. It is the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and your mind and your strength. Now, why can't we do what Jesus wants? Why is it so difficult for us? Or is it true of us? Do we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Now, I'm not saying this. I'm not preaching this sermon because I think you're an unloving bunch of people. I've experienced your love already. And uh, I don't want you to get that information. Oh, Tim thinks we're a very unloving church. No, that's not the case. I know you're a loving church. But I think we all need to hear it. I need to hear this as well. Because we're all subject to the second law of thermodynamics. I'm not a scientist either. I looked this up on the Internet. So if you're a science teacher, uh, don't grade me too heavy. But I'm just going to read it to you. The second law of thermodynamics states that in all energy exchanges, if no energy enters or leaves the system, the potential energy of the state will always be less than that of the initial state. Y'all got that? I don't either. It's called entropy. To state it simply, you always lose energy. And, uh, for example, uh, a wind-up watch, when you wind it up, it unwinds. It has to be rewound. It, has to, it needs more energy. A car has fuel in it that provides energy. When the car runs out of fuel, it stops. Uh, it's true of uh, fire. You know, as long as a fire has wood or coal or some fuel, some form of energy, uh, it can burn and it keeps going. But when the, when the fuel is gone, it's, it's over. It, it dies out. Humans, you have to eat food in order to live. If you stop eating, you will die. The flow of energy maintains order and life. Entropy, the fact that energy goes out and it dies... Uh, entropy wins when organisms or mechanisms cease to take in energy and they die. Now, what's true of watches and cars and fires and human bodies is also true of love. Love grows cold if it is not re-energized and rekindled. It constantly has to be renewed. There has to be some logs thrown on that fire to stoke the fire of our love. You, if you think of a married couple, if a married couple doesn't communicate, if they don't spend quality and quantity time together, if they don't forgive one another, then their love for one another will grow cold, naturally. A successful marriage is one that does, does things to overcome entropy. And what is true of any re marriage relationship is true of our relationship with God. We're all subject to our love growing cold, and we need to have the, the, the fire of our love restoked regularly. How can we rekindle our love for Jesus? Now, I've given you some bad news uh, that we, we all fail to love Jesus as a church and as individuals. But I'm supposed to be a preacher of good news, the gospel. That means good news. So what's the good news? You've told us the bad news, that we're an unloving bunch of people. But there's good news. And the good news is this. It's not that, you know, you can try harder and, and be successful. The good news is this, that Jesus is not going to let you be unloving. He's not going to let you break the relationship. He is going to pursue you. He is uh, in love with you. And he's going to chase you down. And the Bible bears testimony to this. 
You can look uh, in the Old Testament, and you can find it in the, the book of Hosea. You know, he, was, he married a, a, a woman of ill repute, and she was unfaithful to him. And God told Hosea to keep going and buy her back and, re, and marry her and, and keep, keep going and pursuing her. And he was a picture of God's love for his people. And, of course, the greatest example of this is that we were sinners we rejected God. We listened to the, the voice of Satan as humanity fell in the Garden of Eden. But God has continued to pursue us. He's continued to come after us. He loved us so much that He sent Jesus to come chase us down and bring us in. And He paid everything He could pay to have us for His own. Now, I want to read what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Because he's sharing this with them in chapter 5. Now, we read this passage and we, think, uh, we always think, okay, husbands and wives, because that's what he's talking about, husbands and wives. But what he's really talking about is Christ and his people, Christ and the church. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5 to you. So for a moment, ignore what it says about wives and husbands and think about what it says about Christ and the church, Christ and his people. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now, Paul tells the Ephesians that Christ loved his church. He loved his church so much that he gave himself up for her. He wants to sanctify her, to set her apart, to make her special. He cleanses her by washing of water with a word. He wants to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He wants her to be holy and without blemish. He doesn't hate the church. He nourishes the church. He cherishes the church. We're members of his body, one flesh. We're members of Christ. We're the body of Christ. See, Jesus will not have us running off loving other things. I was reading an article on ESPN uh, this morning, actually, while I was supposed to be preparing for this sermon, but I got a great illustration from it. Rory McIlroy was the number one golfer in the world. And he started dating the number one tennis player in the world, Caroline Wozniacki. I think that's how you say her name. Anyway, she's from, she, she's a Dane, and he's from, Eng, from Northern Ireland, excuse me. And as soon as they both started dating one another, their athletic careers went in the tank. Uh, Rory McIlroy fell from number one. Caroline Wozniacki, she fell from number one, got put out in first round at Wimbledon. You know, they, their careers have tanked. And the writer is talking about this and listing other examples of famous people and great athletes who started dating one another, and their athletic career uh, went to pot. Andre Agassi started dating Brooke Shields. He was the number one player in the world, and he went to the 200s, never won a tournament. They separated. He went right back to number one in the world. So he's describing this phenomenon, and he lists several golfers who did the same thing, women golfers who decided to get married 
drop the sport, have children. And his statement that stood out to me was, what can you do? The heart wants what it wants. And that is so true. Our heart wants what it wants. The problem we have is that our hearts want the wrong thing. We're like iron and this earth is like a magnet. And we're attracted to the things of this world. We will love anything else other than the Lord Jesus, it seems like. And what we need to do is do what Paul has, uh, John, Jesus is telling John to tell the Ephesian church to do. If you look at verse 5, how should we respond? We know we have this tendency for our love to grow cold. What do we do? He says, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. See, it's a good thing to recognize that you're messed up. Remember where, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Do the first things, the most important things. Repent. Well, first of all, remember, repent, and then recover. Remember from where you've fallen. You know, this church at one time had 400-plus members, and that's a good thing. And hopefully we can build it back up to that point. But there's no magic bullet, no button we can push. But we need to remember that. That's important. It can be that way. It can be even better than that. Repent. Recognize that, yes, we have this tendency and we need to recapture our love for Christ. And that's why I want to preach on the Gospel of Mark. I want to go, us to go through a Mark and look at Christ. Because as the old song, and some of you may have known this song, I know the young people don't know it, there's a, there was a song called To Know, Know, Know Him is to Love, Love, Love Him. Now, she, the, 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 she's, she's talking about a, a good-looking guy, I'm sure. But it's true of Jesus as well. The better you know Jesus who he is and what he's done for you, the more you will love him because he's irresistible. He's the best. He's perfect in every way. So what we want to do when we're looking at Mark is to take a long, deep look at Jesus and fall in love with him over and over again. And that's when we have the Lord's table that we'll be celebrating soon. It reminds us, tells us to remember. Do this in remembrance of me, Christ said. So we'll constantly remember his great sacrifice on our behalf. Because Jesus wants us to love him and to remember that he's done this for us. So remember and repent and turn from our sin. Turn from our tendency to love these things over here and to put our love back on Christ. And then recover the gospel, especially, because that's the first thing. That's the most important thing. That's the, the thing that got you into the kingdom in the first place was the good news about what Jesus had done for you. And you responded to that and you became a Christian. Now, the gospel is not just the thing you have at first, but... It's something that you need always to be reminded of because the gospel is the, not just the A and the ABCs of the Christian life, but it's the A to the Z of the Christian life. We need to grow deeper into the gospel and a deeper understanding and apprehension of it and a deeper application of it in our lives. And we want to do that as we look at, at, the, at the book of Mark in the coming months. So remember, repent, and recover the first things, the most important things, which is the gospel. Now, Paul uh, prayed for the Ephesians. When he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he made a great prayer that I want us to, to conclude with. <clears throat> Ephesians 3. This is what he prayed for the Ephesians. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that, according to the riches of his glory, <clears throat> he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. See? 
What Paul's saying there is, look, God has everything at his disposal. All of his riches and glory. I'm asking God from his riches to give to you, strengthen your inner being through his Holy Spirit coming into your lives so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's a prayer that Paul makes for the Ephesian church. It's a prayer that we need to pray for our church and for ourselves as individuals, that we would know the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that's beyond even knowing. We can never dive into the depths of it and come to the bottom. It's beyond fully comprehending, but it is so big that we could spend our lifetimes diving in and enjoying it. And we'll be doing that in the coming months. Make that the prayer that you pray for our church and for yourselves in these coming months. And I'm going to get Kim to put it in the, in the prayer sheet. That would be our prayer, uh, that we constantly are praying for ourselves in these days.